So I think it's important to understand is that you must embrace the fact that you live in a world that is not perfect. Consequently, you will be persecuted. And whenever you are persecuted, it could be persecution in uh, overtly, as he says, because you believe in Jesus. It could be inadvertent. It's like you're being attacked, uh, maybe in a way doing with health or, and that's just because of the, the general fact that we live in a, a fallen world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith and in how to critically think for yourself. Your journey of faith is something that you have to do on your own. It is not something we can do for you, but we can come alongside you to encourage you, challenge you, and teach you how to critically think so that you understand your faith and your faith is your own. My name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host, and we cannot do the Salty Pastor podcast without the Salty Pastor himself, Dr. Douglas Peak. What's up, Salty Peeps? Hang loose, baby. Did we go back to the 90s? I'm very confused. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you're all here everybody and thinking for yourself takes some effort but in the end boy you are going to be so glad that you put that work in because it totally changes the trajectory of your life and the kind of life that you live so we're glad that we can help you take this journey and move from uh, a sheep to a person who is either a sheep dog or a lion or a rhino or whatever it is. Whatever animal you identify <laughs> with. Yes. <laughs> well, we are wrapping up our study in First Peter called Don't Freak Out. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter to the first century church approximately 35 years yeah. after mm -hmm. Jesus rose from the dead. Mm -hmm. And during this time, the Roman Emperor Nero was out um, singling out these followers yeah, of Jesus. persecuting Christians. Um, yeah, persecuting them, and they were just barely becoming known as Christians. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, on Tuesday, we did an in-depth study of 1 Peter 4, verse 12 yeah. to... Mm -hmm. Um, chapter five, verse 11. So what are we doing to day? Pastor? Well, I think what we got to do is take what we studied on Tuesday, this in-depth study, and we have to take these biblical principles and see, well, what exactly do they have to teach us in navigating the challenges we face today? And remember this last section is how we're supposed to deal with persecution in our lives. Chapter one is all about you've been saved or redeemed, and this has transformed you or changed you. Therefore, you are being built into a spiritual house. This is chapter two. I think this, this analogy or metaphor of being built into a house is important because you, it, it really speaks to the, you have to prepare, you have to build, you have to strengthen, you have to assemble the, the, your spiritual life is something that is built and God is building you into something it's built all on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, but you are being developed into something. And then chapters three, four, and five are all about how to bear up under persecution and strengthen yourself. So I guess the question is, what are the main biblical principles from our study on Tuesday that we're going to be applying today? Well, I think the first one we have to realize is that persecution is going to happen no matter what. Verse uh, eight of chapter five says your adversary, the devil prowls alone like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So persecution in whatever form that it comes, 
is inevitable. When you are redeemed by Jesus, then you become a target of the devil. And he is prowling around like a roaring lion and he wants to devour somebody. Okay. So I think it's important to understand is that you must embrace the fact that you live in a world that is not perfect. Consequently, you will be persecuted. And whenever you are persecuted, it could be persecution in uh, overtly, as he says, because you believe in Jesus. It could be inadvertent. It's like you're being attacked, uh, maybe in a way doing with health or, and that's just because of the, the general fact that we live in a, a fallen world. You know, somebody gets cancer, you know, I, I believe cancer is a result of the fall, right? So we get these things and, and then, uh, the collective, uh, sin of the world that is, has been corrupted by the fall impacts us. Uh, you might be persecuted because of, uh, a bad decision that you made, and then you're trying to work your way out, or you're paying the consequences of that. That's not so much persecution. You could, you know, qualify that as uh, suffering, but there's all kinds of things that happen in our lives in, in different ways, and you must expect it. And when you are persecuted or going through a difficult time or experiencing chaos in your life, you have to realize that in order to work through it, it will exact a cost. There must be a sacrifice. And he says, you know, Jesus exemplified for us that he paid a sacrifice and suffered, and yet it brought about this good thing. So if you haven't counted the cost, then it's very difficult to survive persecution. For instance, if you're being persecuted for turning your life to Christ and living for him and living for righteousness, guess what? You will be persecuted and it's going to cost you something. It will exact a sacrifice. And if you haven't counted the cost ahead of time, that this is going to cost me something, then it's very difficult to survive the persecution or the experience that you're going to face. I mean, I think I see this happening so often these days where people meet Jesus, they, they start growing, they make a commitment of some sort, mm -hmm. and then something bad happens in their life and they basically start falling away yeah. or they lose their passion for God or, or, or they switch churches because they don't like it or whatever. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, why does this happen? Well, it's not a new thing. You know, this is not a new thing. I mean, if we look back in history, I know that people aren't super familiar with early church history because unless you go to a, a Bible college or a seminary, you never really read it or study it. It's right. not taught in public education. And it's really important to know that in ancient Rome, there were a number of persecutions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the entire empire of Christians. Uh, the first one was Nero's, right? And then there was a break from it. And then Domitian in the early 100s, so probably about 30 years after the Neronian persecution ended, another one cropped up uh, from uh, Domitian, and they went through that. It was an empire-wide one. Then there was one, uh, there's a few more in the late second century, the late 100s, but then another big one was uh, Decius, and the emperor had a, a empire-wide persecution. This is about 250 AD. What's interesting is that this is when this persecution was really, really interesting because 
Under Nero, they grabbed people who were Christians and they tortured them to give up names. And then if they got your name, they just came and arrested you and started torturing you to give up more names. Right. Right. And then they would, so there wasn't a trial. There wasn't anything at all like that. But under the Decius persecution, what they did is they said, look, you, um, you can be persecuted or you will be arrested. Your property seized. You could be tortured depending upon what region you're in, uh, imprisoned, or you could be put to death so they could do that. Or you can renounce your belief in Jesus. Okay. Okay. And the way you would do that is they would say, well, you have to sacrifice, make a sacrifice to the pagan gods. Okay. So a whole bunch of people who were Christians at this time, because Christianity had, it was, is a large minority. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people who were Christians at this time went ahead with the ceremony because they felt like, well, I'm going to do this. It doesn't mean anything. Right. Um, but I'm going to do it. But what happened is in the church, they called this lapsy and it was Latin for those who have lapsed. Okay. okay. And these are people who perform the ceremonial sacrifices to Roman gods during this persecution and they birthed uh the novatians or the novations uh from novatus and what happened is that ultimately became a uh heresy that they had to but it was a group of people that basically said that if you're a lapsy you cannot be brought back into the church okay so you were so basically because you did that we you're forever excommunicated from the church Okay. Okay. Then later on, about 50 years later, there was a Diocletian persecution. Okay. And the Diocletian persecution, it's really fascinating, is the most severe persecution of them all. I mean, it was, it was hardcore, but right after the Diocletian persecution is when Constantine became the emperor and made Christianity legal. And then it became the religion of the state of Rome. So you know, the old, it's always darkest before dawn. Yes. <laughs> it, that was what this was like. It was the worst. But what happened in there is uh, in an attempt to uh, avoid persecution, some Christians turned their Bibles uh, over to the authorities. Okay. And this, they were, they were known as the traditoris. And that means the ones who handed over. So they handed over their, their holy Bible, their sacred doc, they handed it over and that then allowed them to not be persecuted. Well, because of that, there was a group, there was a, a, a priest and a leader and his name was Donatus and they, it gave rise to the Donatists and the Donatists were people after the persecution ended under Constantine because it started in 303 and by 308, you know, five years in, it was pretty much over, Okay. you know, but it, it didn't really officially end until 311, 312 with the Edict of Milan. And, but it really ended fairly, you know, it was only like four or five years long, which is a long time when you're being, you know, persecuted. But what the Donatists did, and this was in Northern Africa and Carthage mostly, is they said, we're going to refuse re-entrance into the church as well. So they basically said... Yeah, and this is where the rise came from of uh, the the idea that you could only be a priest and administer sacraments if you were perfect. Okay. So if you never made a mistake and you had to be you had to be pure, in order you had to, to be do. completely okay. perfect. 
So, so what you see is, is historically you see people who ran into severe times and they turn away or they do something, you know, that doesn't fit. And, and so what happened with Christianity or their walk with Jesus? And then the question becomes is how does a church treat those people? Right? How do you treat them? And you know, yeah, there's people today who start their journey of faith and then they turn around and they fall away. Well, how do we treat them? Uh, how do we treat people who leave church, you know, and, and move around or do whatever, or, or maybe they have a problem. Um, but then they have a moment of reconnecting with Christ. Right. Right. Um, and so they want to return. How do we treat them? Well, the, uh, the Novatians and the Donatists would say, and I think that there's some people in Christianity today throughout the globe who kind of might, uh, resonate with this position or migrate towards it, they go, look, you had your chance. You're done. You know, it, you know, Jesus said, if you deny me before heaven, uh, I if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father who is in heaven. And so the, the difficulty with that is it starts to really smack of legalism and it denies the role of the church, which is a redemptive community of Christ, you know, cause none of us are perfect and none of us are going to be perfect. And so we have to, we have to deal with that. So basically I think we have to look at it from the standpoint that persecution happens and people fall away because persecution is effective at shipwrecking, shipwrecking a person's life. See, persecution is very effective at ruining people's lives. Okay particularly their faith. And this is why Peter wrote his letter because he's admonishing followers of Jesus to grow strong in their faith. And what's really important is this is a decision that you need to make ahead of time before bad times hit. Because if you want to win uh, in the situation, you have to be prepared. Otherwise the persecution wins. And the only thing you have, and I believe the only option is to choose ahead of time. Will persecution win and shipwreck my faith? Or will I prepare myself, train myself? I will grow strong in my faith so that when persecution does come, I am able to stand and stand strong. I think it's interesting that we don't have this mindset when it comes to our faith because you see uh, top level athletes all the time trained for really hard things, right? Yes. People, maybe not even top level athletes, but people that decide to do these crazy long marathons. I hate yeah. running, but yeah. these people that like running. <laughs> yeah, like a hundred miles. Yeah, what is up they, with that? They go out and they train and they know, hey, at these certain points during this run, I'm going to really be struggling. Yes. So I need to work on that thing or I need to be doing some visualization or I need to mentally prepare myself yes. so that I can endure these parts where I'm going to want to give up or I'm going to want to stop after I've done all this work. Right. Yes. And yet we only do that on things that are athletic and <laughs> yeah, physical. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, not everybody does that. And that's why a lot of people fail, but as a whole, you only ever really see that kind mm -hmm. of level of training and psychological preparedness in these mm -hmm. things and they're and yet, in the military, like the seals right. and they really prepare themselves mentally. Cause that's really one of the right. issues and they so struggle. There's with. only these very specific areas and yes. then we have this whole thing that is so important it's our eternal salvation that we're yes. like eh, i'll deal with it as we go yeah right it's just like, no training no training no I'm, preparation and i mean i think it's just this this juxtaposition that we don't think about and oh, then i love when that we word. put them next to each other we go oh oh 
yeah. maybe maybe I should be doing this. So Peter yeah. seems to really be pushing this idea that we need to prepare ourselves for persecution. Yeah, and I think this is why his letter is so important for us today because these people back then were tough. Uh, they had trained themselves spiritually. And I think it's important to note, this is a very critical principle. The quality of my faith has a direct impact on the quality of my earthly life, not just my eternal life in heaven, but my earthly life right now. Nero was persecuting these people. But what was so interesting is they were the happiest people, the most joyous people, the most loving people. They were at peace. One of the reasons why the Neronian persecution ended so quickly is they would round these people up and then they would take them out into Nero's circus Okay. And they would feed them to lions or they'd execute them. And oftentimes when they would release the wild beasts, we have, uh, historians who record this is that the, these Christians would gather together in a circle and pray and sing hymns while they were being killed. You know, it kind of takes the fun out of it. Just a little bit. You know, most people, it's sad. They want a horror movie where someone is screaming and running and scared to death. And there's some entertainment in that, but here these people are singing hymns as they're being slaughtered by wild beasts. And, and so that died out because there was no sport in it. And how could these people be this way in the midst of such devastating persecution? And that was because they had trained themselves and they were very tough minded. I think I want to kind of lead us to this question that I've been having, which is why are we not preparing why are Christians not preparing themselves for hard times in today's world? Well, I, I think that it has a lot to do with the influence of deconstructionism and we can't overstate its influence. I mean, it really is influential. And what I've been saying now, and you've heard this for the last 200 and some odd episodes, 24, <laughs> 224 episodes, you know, over two years of the Salty Pastor podcast is that deconstructionism is a way of thinking. It's not so much what you think, but how you think. And so what it does is it trains you to think in a way that makes you skeptical of everything. So when something happens or there's something in front of you, instead of asking yourself, is this true, right? What you do is your first thought is it can't be true. Mm-hmm. See, you start from a skeptical thing and, the re- and without even realizing it, you've been trained to believe that nothing is actually true. A lot of people don't know that they've been trained to think. So they see something and they go, well, I don't want to be gullible or I don't want people taking advantage, you know, so it can't be true. And so, okay, well, if someone knocks on your door and says, hey, I can triple your money in 24 hours if you give it all to me. Okay, that's probably not true, right? But if someone says, here's the reality of the world in which you live and you're not a perfect person. Uh, you can be good and bad at the same time. And how, who pays for the bad? Okay. That that's probably true. And so that's really important to understand is it's like, it's kind of like this. If I can use an analogy, someone says you need to get moving to improve your health, right? Maybe you're in a lot of shape, you're overweight or whatever. You're not even good. They say you need to go walking or jogging or running. You need to go to the gym. You need to work out. You need to do Pilates or you need to do yoga, whatever it is. But you immediately spend all your time thinking about the problems with moving. 
The problems with walking, well, people who walk can get run over by cars. You can get, hey, you're out there alone. You can be run over, bit by a dog. And jogging, jogging is bad for your joints, you know. Going to the gym, you know, you can't do that because of this. You can't do yoga. You can't do Pilates. So what you do is you immediately, your mind immediately says, if someone says you need to go work out to get healthy, and then you think about all the reasons why you can't do it because you've been trained that way. So you've deceived yourself out of getting into shape. You see your skepticism has caused you to stay out of shape and what's ultimately going to kill you being out of shape. Right. And so that's the end result, a complete weakening of your mind and a weakening of your will. That's what deconstructionism does. It results in a weakening of your mind, a weakening of your will, a weakening of your spirit. So I guess what I've seen the most is really this idea of entitlement, um, which is especially in millennials where we feel like, well, the world owes us or Mm -hmm. karma owes us or God even owes us this thing. You know, I didn't do this, so therefore I deserve this. Or I uh, went to college, therefore I should get paid X amount of dollars for a job Mm -hmm. no matter what, and otherwise I'm not doing it. Or I've been here for three months, therefore I should have a promotion. Just these different levels of like, we deserve things, even though the world has never made that promise to us. Correct. Especially the world has never made that promise to us, right? And so do you feel like that is something that is spun out from deconstructionism? Oh, absolutely. Symptom of that? Yeah, absolutely. Deconstructionism thinking entices you to think like a victim, like the world owes you something because that is the whole point. You know, here's, here's how it basically works. And it starts very young. And that is you present a utopia, right? Mm -hmm. You present a utopia to our elementary school kids. You know, our, our elementary school goes out and says, you know, like on earth day, you know, we need to take care of the earth. And do I think it's good to take care of the earth? Yeah. As a steward, I do. But they give you this image that the earth can be a perfect place, free of pollution, you know, free of this, free of that, free of everything. And, you know, it's almost this worship of the earth kind of a thing. But they say, oh, when we talk about government, you know, uh, government should function this way and, and human beings are perfect and everything is wonderful. What they're doing is they are proposing a utopia uh, an environmental utopia, a political utopia, an economic utopia. And that's the unspoken premise is that utopia can exist. And then what you do is you build an expectation since this is the way it is supposed to be that young people um, embrace it. So they think about perfection. They say this exists. Therefore, if something goes wrong or you're not getting or experiencing this utopia, then guess what? There's some fault. There's a problem, Mm -hmm. right? And of course, Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, he uh, postulated, and I call this the Rousseauian issue, is that human beings are basically blank slates. You're pure, Okay, you are pure. What corrupts you is society. Right. Now, this definition of humanity is the exact opposite of Christianity. Okay. Christianity doesn't specifically say how when you're born, you get sin, right? It just says because you're born, sin passes to you. There's some systematic theologies that have different ideas on the the mechanism of how that works. But, um, the bottom line is it says, since we're alive, we're all sinners. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So Rousseau says, well, you're pure, you know, until the older you get, you're going to be corrupted by society. So you grow up thinking I'm pure. I'm the center of the universe. And the, the problem then is society. Then that creates an entitlement mentality. And then if you have an entitlement mentality, you will always think like a victim. Okay. You always think like a victim. Cause when, when, when you have to, when you believe that, uh, uh, Rousseau's position, what you're saying is, well, all I have to do is change the system. And then my experience and everybody else's experience will be perfect. We won't have any problems. And this of course is a deception. It's completely ignorant. It's completely false because how can imperfect people, regardless of how you got corrupted, whether it was society or the biblical definition of the death passes to all of us because we've all sinned, it doesn't matter how you got corrupted. How could something corrupted create something perfect? Mm. It's impossible. And yet that's the notion that people are buying into. And this is the end result. The end result is just recently, I don't know if you know who Meghan Markle is. She married uh, Prince Harry, one of the the English princes. You know, his older brother William is in line to secede the throne there. Someday, maybe. Yeah, someday, maybe. <laughs> and so she just compared life. Now, this gal grew up, right? And she was an actress. She was on a couple of uh, shows, and, and she'd done very well. And then she marries him, and you know, they are infinitely wealthy. I mean, they're infinitely wealthy, right? They can live anywhere they want. They moved to America and all this kind of stuff. So she just compared her life to, uh, Nelson Mandela and getting out of prison. Mm. You know, I'm like, that is a disconnect yeah. beyond belief. Uh, just recently on, um, the music awards or whatever they call that, you know, those award shows, I don't yes. ever watch them. I just read about this, but Lizzo, who is a, musician, you know, uh, if you're not familiar with Lizzo, uh, she's got some really catchy tunes that people really like. She's also an extremely large woman. She's probably about 150 pounds overweight. Okay. She's, so she's very wealthy. She's very famous. She's very overweight. She received this award. So on the stage with this award in her hand, she was wearing a $10,000 dress, the dress she was wearing. $10,000 to buy that dress. And she got up. You know what she did? She talked about how she was oppressed. Hmm. So that, that's how, that's just insane, right? To, to, to be on the top, so to speak of whatever social hierarchy, uh, ladder it exists because they always exist and then claim that you're oppressed while you're there. That to me is just shows this, how deconstructionism has affected the way people think about everything. It's especially damaging uh, to young males. I mean, just think about the average person and what they're dealing with. If you have Meghan Markle and Lizzo talking about how they're oppressed, right? right? Then the average person is like, man, I am super oppressed because I don't, I'm not wealthy. I'm not famous. I'm not any of those things. Mm-hmm. If they're oppressed, then just imagine how oppressed I am. So no wonder depression and anxiety is such a problem for young people today is, uh, particularly young males. I think it's extremely damaging to young males, this deconstructionist way of thinking. I really do. I mean, it just puts young males in a situation where they don't even know what they're supposed to be doing with their lives. I think that's why we see so many specifically young males continuing to live with their parents well after they should have 
flown the coop, mm-hmm. give or take, because they don't know what they're supposed to believe. They're being told constantly that they're toxic and that um, if they're white, that they're privileged and that they should be, you know, fighting against the system and doing mm-hmm. all these things and all of this different stuff of what men are supposed to be and how bad they are in general has just basically put them in a state where they're like, well, I'm just never going to leave because I can't achieve what my perfect is because I'm just apparently bad in all aspects. Or or if I, if I disagree with that thought, I get yelled at, or if I do know what I want, then I'm going to constantly be wondering, well, is this, is this what I supposed to be doing? And am I wrong? because that skepticism makes them so unsure. And so then they just basically live in fear and uncertainty and hide out in the basement of their parents' house or whatever. Yeah. Or they hide out, you know, the amount of males today that are dealing with substance abuse, you know, they're self-medicating the amount of males who are lost. A lot of males don't want to get married. A lot of males, you know, men aren't becoming men anymore. And I don't think that's the, the fault of these young males. I think it's a, the fault of society that is bought into this thinking and has tried to recreate the structure of society to fit some crazy political ideological outcome, which is so ridiculous uh, on its surface, let alone when you dig down beneath it, it's unbelievable that what our society is doing. And the result of this, um, phenomena has also creeped crept into the church. I think, um, right now, if you get on, uh, some social media platforms, uh, what you'll see is this massive, uh, movement now called ex evangelical. And it's all about people who are giving up their faith and it's real popular to record. Yeah, I was this, I was a pastor or I was this, and I've given up my faith and they all have the exact same background to their story. Right. And you know what it is? It's well, the church traumatized me. There's, I was abused by the church. It's an entire industry of people who talk about how they are victims of spiritual abuse. Now, I, what I like to point out here is that many, many, many years ago, my wife and I got involved with a ministry called Safe Place Ministries, and it was a ministry to help women transition out of domestic violence. Uh, domestic violence is a problem, right? It is abuse. So I, I'm working with these women, right, who are experiencing domestic violence. I mean, it's uh, it's physical violence, it's severe, and it's diff. I mean, it, it's just heartbreaking and wrenching to hear these stories. And but the way that we were trained, you know, and there we train. I I, I didn't do it, but as, uh, as being a part of the board, my wife was a president of the board. Is that they were training people as you got, you go in and the the first thing you do is you can't really take the decision-making process away from these people. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to get them making decisions again, these women in order to, to make a decision to leave. And oftentimes they can't leave until the, you know, seventh or eighth time. And so you look at that and you go, how sad. And then this is probably, I started doing this 22, 23 years ago, easily. Then what happened is now I'm in the church and I have women who would come to me as a pastor and say, I need to talk to you. And I need to talk to you about my husband. At the time I was young, I, I wasn't as uh, wise as I am now. What I do now is, is if a woman says, I need to come talk to you about my husband. I say, well, bring your husband because you know, I can't, you know, the person who you say is the problem isn't in the room. So it can't really help, you know, mm-hmm. so come together so that we can work on it. You guys can work on it together. 
And, but back then what would happen is, is people would say to me, and I found this really fascinating. I said, well, I'm, I'm being abused, you know? And I'm like, well, describe to me this abuse, you know? And they describe what I would consider uh, rude behavior, bad behavior, but nothing like these women who suffered actual domestic violence. It wasn't even close. But these people would tell me that what they were experiencing was on the same level as these women over here. And I saw this massive disconnect. And so I became, I started to become skeptical because, um, this ex evangelical movement is exactly that, you know, they say like this woman, for instance, in the ex evangelical, she said, I was abused and traumatized by my church. And you know, the reason why she said she was abused, physically abused, by her church, not physically, I'm saying emotionally and spiritually abused by her church was because she filed for a divorce from her husband. And then she asked her church to support her in the midst of her divorce. And her church said, well, we think you need to go to counseling and try to work this out. So she didn't go to the church prior to her divorce. And then once she got divorced, she went to the church and said, I need you to do this. And they said, well, we would rather you try to you know, work on it first. And she called that spiritual abuse. Mm. That, that seems a, a little bit of a disconnect for me. Uh, there's a couple who are ex evangelicals. They talked about the spiritual abuse that they suffered from their church and what abuse did they suffer? Well, they were living together before they were married and they asked to have their wedding ceremony in the church. And the church said, well, we'll be glad if you are willing to stop living together before you get married. They called that spiritual abuse. Mm. The largest um, amount of so-called spiritual abuse today, which is really difficult, it occurs in the issue of the LGBTQ plus community. And that is, is that if a church doesn't affirm the lifestyle, uh, they are considered abusers. They are considered uh, hateful, homophobic. It goes so far to say that if you even call any one of the letters, you know, the LGBTQ or what, uh, in the acronym, if you call any of those letters and say that that behavior is sinful, according to the Bible, you're committing an act of violence against that person because you are encouraging violence by calling their behavior a sin. And th this is the new battleground that's happening in our society today. So I think my, my opinion is, is that you should be very suspicious of victimology or victimhood. People who are single again are very attuned to this, right? If you're single again, you're divorced and you start going out, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go out, you start dating uh, you, on the first date. The guy sits there and rags on his ex-wife the entire time. Is that a red flag or a green flag? Red flag. <laughs> it's red flag. So you're very attuned to this, right? You already know that. And so I think the real important thing in this situation is abuse of any kind is serious in its nature, but it must be addressed directly. And unfortunately, when you start calling everything you don't like abuse, when you accuse people of abuse and all kinds of stuff, then real abuse is dismissed. And that's the problem is real accurate abuse that must be addressed immediately gets overlooked because everybody's claiming they're a victim. Everybody's claiming that they're being abused and you, you start asking specifics. Okay. What actually did this person do? Let's go through it. You start realizing is that, Hmm, there's a little bit of a disconnect 
here. So I think that's one thing that we're seeing in the this deconstructionist mentalities. It's training everybody to think like a victim. So they're going out and they're looking for any slight and then they call that slight abuse. Well, and that's dangerous. And it's hurting the people who are actually suffering. Exactly. Right? Like people, exactly. People that are in an abusive relationship are then dismissed because they're like, well, the last person who said they were in a abusive relationship just wasn't getting the dishes put away in the dishwasher each week. And that was abusive to their psyche. Yeah. And right? that's why what deconstructionism does is it, it, it doesn't allow the, the significant difference between those things to exist. And it so what everything exactly, level, right? Exactly. And so I, I think that's very important. And I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, I, <laughs> no, I, you're not. I am not. That's just not how <laughs> you're my very works. well grounded. But this ideology has really had a huge, massive influence mm-hmm. on the mental health of America. And I don't think that's a conspiracy. I think it's just mm-hmm. accurate and truth. And I mean, especially Christians in America, it's yeah. really changed the way that they even are allowed or can daily interact with their faith. Yeah. And this is what's so interesting is remember what Peter said over and over and over again. He says, look, if you do something wrong, if you meddle or you commit a crime or you do something wrong and you're suffering, he said, look, you're, you're just kind of reaping, you know, the consequences of your, of the criminal act or whatever may be the case. And so he goes, but if you're suffering for Jesus, in other words, a real injustice, like people who are really being abused or people who, who really have a case for that, um, he doesn't say, think like a victim. Even in there, he says that it's commendable by God. Now, he's not saying that we who see that should dismiss that and keep people who are suffering abuse in those situations. He's not saying that at all. What he is saying, though, is that it doesn't benefit any of us to start calling everything we don't like abuse. It, it's not, it's not. And everything that we disagree with is not abusive. You know, you're turning yourself into a snowflake, a very weak minded person. So that when real persecution comes down, you're going to be a lapsy or a traditorious. And that's not good for you, your faith, your family, or your community. Thank you, Pastor Doug, for sharing so much with us today. We went a little long, but obviously you're trying to round up a lot of different Trying to wrap it all up. But speaking of roundup, actually, round I do up. want to make sure that everyone is aware that next Sunday, so September 11th, we yes. are having roundup here at Foothills. Whether you come here or not, we want to invite you guys as the Salty Pastor audience, you're part of the family, to come to roundup. There's going to be 500 pounds of tri-tip. There's going to be so many things for the kids to do. Yeah. Pony rides, face painting, dunk tank, climbing wall all kinds of different things. We're going to be honoring our first responders who, who serve um, without any real praise. Most of the time we're going to be honoring them in memory of the nine 11 yes. um, first responders who yes. perished. And we're going to be just um, honoring the, the sacrifice of nine 11, but also kicking off a brand new season of ministry here at Foothill. So come join us on uh, September 11th after second service. So around 12 o'clock, mm-hmm. we're going to have a ton of food, ton of fun, and it's going to be on down. Just so Come great. down and get some free food and just enjoy it. We'd love to have you. Make sure you wear your Western wear. We're going to have <laughs> all the cowboys and cowgirls on campus. But um, we just want to thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll see you on Sunday here at Foothills Christian Church for the grand finale of Don't Freak Out. Blessings. Blessings.